Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week, we'll tee up a couple of monstrous mutant movies, and Jeff's got a big review. I'm Jeff Braun. Yes, I saw Barbie. Yeah, I also have some comedy recommendations, and it's a big anniversary for one of my favorite movies. Also, one of my favorite shows on Global returns on Monday, and I've got a quick review of a movie I thought would be fun, but not so much. But first, I finally got around to part two of Barbenheimer this week and saw Barbie. It's time for Barbie. Me? To discover the real world. No, 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 no. Watch me. I've started to get all these weirdo feelings. It's anxiety. I have a tooth. You're going to start getting sad and wishy and complicated. She's not dead. She's just having an existential crisis. What about Ken? I'm just a dude. Ken isn't something we're worried about. What? I gotta say, after two weeks in theaters, Barbie has made over $800 million worldwide, so this thing is almost certainly going to be part of the Billion Dollar Club, uh, probably by the end of this weekend. And I gotta say, I was a little nervous going into the movie, only because of all the hype and the wave that this movie's been riding a couple for a couple of weeks now. It's just that when there's that much hype, how can a movie ever live up to it? I mean, you know, The Phantom Menace sucks, but it hurts so much more because of all the hype leading up to it, that sort of thing. Now, I didn't think Barbie was going to suck, but I was afraid... It would underwhelm a little, given all the attention it's received. I also want to point out that uh, when my girlfriend Kim and I were walking into the theater, I said, I really don't even know what to expect. I haven't heard a lot of specifics about this movie, which is weird in general and really weird, again, given all the attention. The lights went down, the movie began, and I realized why that was because, you know, simply put, I don't know how to describe this movie. The poster says, she's everything, and so is the movie. It's best experienced, I think, without knowing what to expect, so I'm just not going to talk about the plot. Suffice to say, it is one of the best movies of the year, probably the best so far. I thought it was amazing. It's entertaining, quite entertaining. It also has a lot to say. Again, rare for a movie to be both of those things. Uh, It's literal. It's very existential. It's funny and dramatic. I laughed a lot. I also cried three times. It's very deep. It's also, you know, based on a toy. It confronts the things people love about Barbie and the things people hate about Barbie. And it looks at what Barbie was originally, what it became, how it fits in today's world. It's incredibly creative and inventive. And it's also a shameless shill for Mattel. It is literally everything. Uh, a quick note on Mattel. It's a toy company that I would assume only cares about its bottom line. So for it to get on board with a movie like this, that is not what you know the Transformers movies were to Hasbro. Something that is instead actual art that actually has things to say about the world is pretty impressive. I don't make a habit of congratulating massive faceless corporations, but uh, good job by Mattel. And from everything I've heard and read, that had a lot to do with the star of the movie, Margot Robbie, who at this point must be considered the Oscar frontrunner for Best Actress. She's also producer of the movie and reportedly shielded writer-director Greta Gerwig and co-writer Noah Baumbach from Mattel, sort of giving them the creative license to do what they wanted, and Mattel and Warner Brothers and everyone involved are, you know, being rewarded handsomely for that. So maybe that'll be a new trend, letting creative people be creative and not having a bunch of butting in by folks who don't know jack about making movies. One can only hope. Because frankly, Greta Gerwig has pulled off quite a magic trick here. It's This movie is operating on a lot of different levels at the same time. 
Weirdly enough, like Oppenheimer, one viewing I don't think is going to do it. There's so much going on, and it very much seems like the kind of movie where you will pick up new things each time you see it. And honestly, I probably will never pick up as much as probably the women who see it because it's very much about femininity and feminism, and my life experience is obviously different from that of women. Uh, I don't have a problem with that. God knows there are more than enough movies geared towards men out there, and that's what's great about Ken. At the beginning of this movie, he's just Ken. He's just there like so many women in so many thankless roles in, you know, most other movies, I would say. I mean, I'm sure if we went through Margot Robbie's career, we could find a lot of movies where she's got, she just plays the wife and doesn't have much to do. So to see that flipped, I thought was kind of fun. Ryan Gosling, great as Ken, by the way. He gets a lot of the laughs in the movie. The supporting cast, also terrific. There were some faces popping up I didn't even know were in here, so I don't want to name people to say who they played. Uh, Seriously, the more you know going in, I think the worse off you are with this one. It's just all very original, and you'll be glad to to not know anything beforehand. I will say... Every time I thought I had the movie figured out, there would be a pretty serious swerve in the storytelling right up until the very last line. And uh, Barbie is in the discussion for best last line in a movie ever. And if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. And you're probably giggling to yourself. Uh, the set design of Barbie Land that you've seen in the commercials and the trailers, all the costumes in the movie are kind of mind-blowing. I would say it's got to be a lock for those Oscars. Um, it's not my world. My sister had some Barbie, so I was sort of familiar with some of it, but I would imagine the people who are really into Barbie had to be impressed with all the detail in the sets. I, I'm guessing there must have been dozens of these little Easter eggs in the background that I'd never picked up on. I don't really have anything bad to say about the movie, except weirdly enough for the Chevy product placement. Uh, you'll notice it. You can't miss it. And I found it a little distracting. And I know that's a very bizarre complaint to have for a movie based on a toy that Mattel only greenlit to sell more dolls, but whatever. Uh, the middle part also has some Will Ferrell related stuff that isn't as good as the rest, the beginning and the end of the movie, although he is very funny, but you can tell he's kind of trying to prop up a situation that maybe isn't quite as strong. It's not bad. It's just not as strong as the rest of the movie. And otherwise, I think this is pretty much a masterpiece. Um, And what a fun time for the movies. Cineplex reported earlier this week that they just had their best July of all time, mostly based on Barbie and Oppenheimer. And my theater was Packed on a weeknight 10 days after the movie opened and a lot of people were dressed in pink. Um, It's especially gratifying because both of these movies are very different from each other, although they each have a lot of existential uh, philosophizing going on. But they're also very different from everything else that's been dominating the box office the last 10 years or so. Fast and Furious, the MCU, Mission Impossible, Indiana Jones, none of those movies this summer have created the buzz of Barbenheimer. Uh, they haven't been making the money they were expected to make for the most part, I don't think, and they you know, certainly weren't as good as their predecessors. Most of those franchises feel like they're nearly done or just uh, shells of what they formerly were. And it's heartening to know that there's still an appetite out there for other things, for new original movies. Um, Please don't make Barbie 2 if anybody from Warner Brothers is listening because it's damn near perfect the way it is. Four and a half couch cushions out of five for Barbie. All right. So a couple of questions or uh, one question and then perhaps just some comments on box office. But some of the headlines I've seen are that the Barbie movie hates men. And then there's a series of counter headlines that say, no, Barbie doesn't hate men. Did you detect any of that? Uh, they take a lot of shots at men, and a lot of them are very earned shots. There's one thing one thing they shoot, take a shot at men, and my girlfriend just looks at me, and she's like, that's you. And I was like, yep, you're right. And it was one of the Ken's uh, 
boring the hell out of his girlfriend by explaining The Godfather to her. Well, she's just like, why are we even watching this movie? It was really funny. So there's a lot of stuff like that. There's a lot of uh, talk about the patriarchy and uh, Ken's confusion over it and stuff. So, yeah, there's shots at men in there, but it... It all makes sense. I don't think there's any unfair shots in there at all. I think it's all richly deserved, and it's just it's interesting to see it from the the woman point of view kind of thing, which, again, like I said, you don't get in a lot of movies. So it's, it's like every 10 years there's a movie comes out, like Bridesmaids came out, yeah. and you're like, oh, there's such a huge market for movies about women. Why don't we make more of those? And then they just don't, you know what I mean? Or they yeah. make some terrible versions of something like that. So hopefully, you know, like Hollywood being what it is, I'm not getting my hopes up that this is like a, some sort of like a sea change is going to happen because of the Barbie movie or whatever. But it, it's good to see something like this just have just go nuts at the box office. Yeah, because uh, it's domestic is three hundred and eighty one million dollars as of we're recording this on Thursday. Uh, and it's worldwide total is eight hundred and eleven million dollars. And I think that puts it basically sort of like right behind the Super Mario Brothers movie that has $1.3 billion. And uh, like when you look at movies like Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, it's got a $451 million worldwide, but domestically it's only made $142 million. That Sound of Freedom movie about human trafficking is outperforming Mission Impossible. It's up to a, a shocking $153 million dollars. Uh, domestically, but it's only looks like it's only been released domestically. It doesn't have a worldwide total. Um, so it's been interesting that the Indiana Joneses and the Mission Impossible, even Elemental, the Disney Pixar, usually right. that's a slam dunk for, and it made it's at 146 million domestic, almost 400 million worldwide. So the worldwide totals for a lot of these movies are pretty good, but the domestic takes are flops. And, and the, uh, the Fast and the Furious, that thing was out of theaters in three weeks. Which what? Is, yeah, that lasted three weeks in theaters before it was gone, which is, I mean, it's a more crowded marketplace this summer. Like, as we've been saying, this is like the first real full summer since 2019, I guess. Yeah. So I, that maybe had something to do with it, but it also didn't make nearly as much money as like, I think Fast and Furious 7 has been the best money earner so far. That thing broke a couple records that were then broken a few weeks later by some MCU movie and a Jurassic Park movie or oh, something like that. Yeah. So. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's like I said, most of these franchises are getting tired. They've been getting a little bit tired creatively, and now the box office is showing that as well. Yeah, Furious 7 made $1.5 billion worldwide, and uh, Fast X made uh, just over $700 million, yeah, $704 million. So, like half. Yeah. So, okay, we've got a couple of original movies, and Oppenheimer, by the way, it, the, the original predictions are sort of tracking all the way through. Oppenheimer is essentially at half of what Barbie's at. It's got 188 million domestic and 419 million worldwide, so that's pretty remarkable that the two of them have been able to maintain that consistent pace. Yeah. So big, it's been a big week, a couple of weeks at the movies, and this weekend we've got a couple of big releases. One of them looks great, the other one apparently not so much. We will explain next. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. A couple of new movies in theaters this weekend. There's a new shark movie, and those are always winners. It's The Meg to The Trench. Jonas, we need your help. 
We're detecting increased aquatic activity 25,000 feet deep in the trench. It's an ancient ecosystem untouched by man. Whatever is down there is trying to make its way to the surface. This is a bad idea. Just a little bit. Jason Statham returns from the original Meg as Jonas, the man you want around when there's an impossibly big shark to kill. The trailers looked fun, mostly people trying to either escape from the jaws of the giant shark that's come to kill them or trying to attack it. Statham jumps at it with a spear, which I have a hard time believing will be very effective. The first Meg also had a fun trailer. Then the movie ended up being not as much fun. I was hoping it would be kind of good-bad, but it was mostly bad-bad, although it is still pretty watchable. I'm going to have to rewatch it this weekend before... Going to see this new one next week. Not a lot of reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, so there's no score there. And uh, the day before it opens is probably not a good sign for that. But no, we'll the see. score is 0%. On six reviews. Yeah. Yeah, so... But six people didn't like it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, there you go. Shark movie sequels do not have a good reputation. Um, Jaws might be, you know, the record holder for being a great original movie, followed by just the worst possible sequels. Jaws 2, not terrible, but by the time they got to Jaws 4, Jaws the Revenge, things were pretty dire. That one is actually so bad it is good, if memory serves, but I've only seen it once years ago. That might be worth a rewatch as well. So we'll see what happens with The Meg 2, The Trench, out this weekend. <laughs> I just hope it goes better than last time. What happened last time? You don't want to know. No, no, no! We never seen this before. They hunted it back. We can relax. This place, magproof. I mean, Jonas was always afraid of this, but I was also thought. The other big new movie out this week open on Wednesday, and I have a musical stroll through memory lane for those of a certain vintage to tee this up. I wore out the cassette for this particular soundtrack. Terrible. Just terrible. And enjoy having that last one stuck in your head for the rest of the week. It is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. That's right, the Ninja Turtles are back. Again, after several movies, both live action and animation, and after several animated series, of course, like the one for the music you're hearing, there are specials like Batman vs. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and of course the comic books from the 1980s that inspired all of it. This new movie is an animated one that looks really cool, and by all accounts, it is. This Wednesday. We're gonna need every single ninja technique, all right? I need you guys to use stealth to block the doors. Did you say going loud? <laughs> From Seth Rogen comes a movie that crushes for absolutely every age. Tell me more, obviously. It's effortlessly cool and visually stunning. 
It's the most fun you'll have at the movies this year. That seems very dangerous. You eat danger for breakfast. Actually, I eat pizza with bits of waffles on it. Only Peters. Wednesday, PG. Co-written and produced by Seth Rogen, who is also the voice of the mutant Bebop. John Cena is rock steady, and Ice Cube is the voice of the big bad mutant Superfly. What the? Y'all some little tortoises, huh? I can't believe there are other mutants. You want to roll with us? <laughs> Humans are never gonna like us. So we gonna let the mutants rule the earth. People's they got to go. Okay. That last voice you heard, by the way, was Paul Rudd as Mondo Gecko. And the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are actually voiced by teenagers. Anyway, what do we do? We need to get in the, into the plot here. They're teenagers, they are mutant ninja turtles. And their adopted father is a mutant rat, voiced by Jackie Chan. It's getting awesome reviews. The animation looks super cool. I think the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse animation style is going to launch a new trend of different styles of animation, which I think is great because the standard CG is fine, but it's nice to see different stuff. It's at 94% on Rotten Tomatoes from both the critics and the fans. Up next, one of my favorite shows on Global is back for a third season. You are listening to The Couch Potato. I'm Brett, he's Jeff, we are the Couch Potatoes. Coming up on Monday, August 7th on Global, Departure Season 3 makes its debut, and we'll get to that in a moment. Before that, what is Departure, you say? It debuted in the summer of 2020. That first season was a six-part series that follows the investigation into the shocking disappearance of a passenger plane over the Atlantic. It starred Archie Punjabi as the lead transportation investigator and the late, great Christopher Plummer. He's also in the second season, not nearly as much as the first, though. And that first season was great. And it was commissioned by Global, and NBC Universal bought the series to air in the UK, Germany, France, Spain, Poland, and Africa. And eventually the streaming service Peacock picked it up in the US. And I see it's on something called Lionsgate Play, which is in countries like India, Malaysia, and the Philippines. And on the subject of two, season two, it aired last year, but I never got around to watching it last year. I'm not sure why. It's only six episodes again, so it's not like it's a major commitment, but I did finally watch it last week. Final boarding, Toronto to Chicago. The brakes are responding. Kendra Mali, I'm the lead crash investigator. Early reports are 60 dead. Do you think someone killed all these people on purpose? Your crash just became my crime scene. The tanker truck is an anomaly. I saw that man. He killed someone. Someone's prepared to go to any extent to stop us from finding the truth. So this time, the central mystery is about a train crash. The first of its kind high-speed train that goes between Canada and the U.S., crashes. But why did it crash? Was it an accident? Well, of course it wasn't an accident. There'd be no show if it was an accident. And just like the first season, there are many twists and turns that keep you guessing, that keep the thrills going, many red herrings, and some enjoyable subplots that really do help keep the momentum going without getting in the way or feeling half-baked. You can watch both the first and second seasons, by the way, on demand or through the Global TV app, or on Stack TV. And now, here we are, on to season three. Storm shifted, headed straight our way. Monday on Global. All of a sudden, there's this large bang. 
Like an explosion. Accusations. I know who did this. I know who sank that ferry. This ship's going down! The trail. We've got a problem. Conspiracy. She's leading passengers deeper into the ship. Emmy Award winner Eric McCormick. All ears for signs of life, people. And Emmy Award winner Archie Panjabi. Something is nodding up here. No! Departure. New season Monday at 7 on Global. Also available on Stack TV. So the first season was about something in the air, second season on land, and now at sea. A ship carrying over 300 people sinks, and the survivors, if any, must be found. But something more sinister lurks under the waters. Something bigger than just a ship accident. Will the team responsible for rescuing passengers stay afloat in their mission or drown among the dangerous games at play? Here's the thing. If you like this show, or if you decide to watch the first two seasons and get into season three, this third season has already aired elsewhere. Like the first two seasons aired pretty much everywhere else. Months, if not a full year before Global aired it. I'm guessing it's just where they want the program to land on the schedule. They like it in the summer. Uh, but I bring this up because watch out for spoilers. This is a mystery show after all. You don't want the mystery to get ruined. So again, catch up with the first two seasons and then start watching season three on Monday, August 7th on Global of Departure. Now this next show I want to review, now that it is complete, it's weird how this lined up. It ended on Wednesday, August 2nd and Departure starts on August 7th because Archie Punjabi is in them both and both series involve incidents with planes. We're talking about Hijack. Operation has commenced. Roads, tablets. Plane is under control. You need to see this. The plane did, of course. Someone is calling for help. Got family, loved ones. We got one job to do right now. Just get through to them. I got a message from the plane. Dad says incident on board. What exactly does your dad do for a living? It's difficult to explain. Sam's the best at handling it. Handling what? The negotiation. There are 200 people on this flight. If they try something, and then this plane goes down, I don't get home to my family. Let me make you an offer. So Hijack debuted on June 28th. It's a seven-episode series that takes place on a seven-hour flight from Dubai to London, a flight that gets hijacked. It's more or less in real time. It's not quite like the series 24, where it's down to the minute, but it's close enough. Idris Elba plays Sam Nelson, who is some sort of a big-shot corporate negotiator who is good at handling it when things kick off. So he inserts himself into the situation to try to mitigate any potential disaster, all what they try to get the word to the ground. Punjabi, meanwhile, plays a counterterrorism agent and is a pretty big part of the show. I gave a quick review after four episodes, so I won't repeat myself too much. I'll just say I really enjoyed this series. It is tense. It's got great cliffhangers at the end of every episode, particularly episode six, which of course leads into the finale. Normally, I'm a proponent of watching shows week to week rather than binging them all at once. Not that I have a problem with binging. I like it just fine. But I think now that this season is finished, it might be better if you haven't started because you will want to binge it. Should point out there are a couple of really dumb things that happen in this show. Like they're almost it's one of those things where they're like, well, we gotta stretch this out to seven hours. Let's make let's do this and it, just so the plot could happen, but 
Ah, whatever. It was still lots and lots of fun. Highly recommended. Hijack on Apple TV+. Plus. I actually want to see that. I don't have Apple TV+, Plus, but uh, I keep getting very tempting offers every time I buy movie tickets or something. Oh, you can get six free months of Apple TV+. Plus and uh, maybe one day I'll get it. All these dumb streamers now, they're all <laughs> offering such great... Like Apple TV+, Plus. when it first started, it had like, what, two, three shows? Yeah. And now they've got a whole bunch, and, and they, they all have big, big stars. Yeah. And they're all... Every show I've watched on Apple is really good, and Paramount now has looks like it's got lots of great stuff. And uh, I'm sure we'll get more streamers come yep. down the pike. It just I don't know. I can't afford all of it. I just can't. I know. I know. So, uh, maybe once we head into winter and we have uh, more sitting around inside time, I'll actually look into getting that. I did watch a couple of other things this week. Uh, a few new and recent stand-up comedy specials on some of the streamers that I've really enjoyed lately. Chief among them, Nate Bargatze's Hello World on Prime Video. I miss being young. Your 20s are great. You're down for whatever. Your friends call you, they're like, do you want to go? You're like, I'll go. You don't even know where you're going. You're like, I'll move, dude. I'll, I'll set my apartment on fire. What do you want to do? <laughs> Your 30s come, and you're like, where are we going? How late are they open? Is it loud? I am going to drive separate. Your 40s, you're uh, I'm not going. I'm, uh, I'm mad that you thought I would go. <laughs> wow, that is so true, all of it. Uh, Borgazzi has become one of my favorite stand-up comics, and his new special, Hello World, is hilarious. It came out a month, maybe two ago. I've watched it three times already and watched some of the bits on YouTube dozens of times. He has a few specials out there, so if he's a new comedian to you, there's quite a bit to check out. And he's clean. You can watch with the kids around. Don't have to worry about that. Jim Gaffigan also has a new special out, also on Prime Video. He also works clean, although there's a lot of bathroom jokes in this one. It's called Dark Pale. No F-bombs or anything like that, but he talks about a lot of toilet stuff. He's got a ton of specials under his belt already. I think this one was his 10th. I've also seen him live a couple of times. Always a treat. If Jim Gaffigan comes to your town, go see him. You won't be disappointed. The other stand-up special I watched this week is brand new over on Netflix. It's from Mark Normand. It's very funny. Not at all for the kids. A hard R rating on that guy's material, and he made me laugh a lot. It's called Soup to Nuts. It's his first special, I believe. I've seen him do stand-up on talk shows and things like that before. Never seen him go a whole hour. He talks pretty fast, so, so it was a little tiring trying to keep up with him, but still a good time. Those are just the latest ones I've watched. There's, I'm always impressed. There's a, just a ton of stand-up comedy on Prime and Netflix for sure. Crave has a bunch as well, I believe. I gotta say Adam Sandler's uh, special 100% Fresh on Netflix in 2018, still the best I've seen in recent years and I'm just still impressed with Sandler's creative comeback the last few years. Between that, Hubie Halloween, the murder mystery movies, Hustle, and of course Uncut Gems. But yeah, lots of good stand-up out there. All right, and up next, we must celebrate yes. an anniversary of one of Jeff's favorites. And I'm going to tell you about a movie that I recently watched that is certainly not going to go down as one of my favorites. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And one of the greatest movies of all time celebrates its 30th anniversary this weekend. Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones star in the 1993 action thriller, The Fugitive. Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. 
Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injury, is four miles an hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. Checkpoints go up in 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. The Fugitive is, for my money, the best dad movie of all time, and I watch it a couple of times every year. Impossible not to like this one, I think. It's up there with movies like Back to the Future and Jurassic Park. If you're scrolling through the channels and you see it, you probably click on it. It's just a fun movie. It's actually kind of two movies happening at once. There's a cat and mouse chase movie with U.S. Marshal Tommy Lee Jones hunting down Harrison Ford, the doctor who everyone thinks killed his wife. And then there's the mystery detective story of Ford trying to solve his wife's murder to clear his own name. Tommy Tommy Lee Jones, of course, the real treat. He's phenomenal. And this is a movie where everyone really took notice of him. He's perfect as the acerbic, no-nonsense, all-business marshal. He's very funny as well. And you get to play along as an audience member, wondering what you would do if you were Dr. Kimball. Would you jump off that waterfall? How would you try to disguise yourself? Where would you sleep? How would you evade the authorities? Um, Tommy Lee Jones ended up winning an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, which is kind of rare because these movies don't usually win Oscars. And he beat some uh, heavy hitters. He beat uh, Ray Fiennes from Schindler's List. He beat Leonardo DiCaprio from What's Eating Gilbert Grape, John Malkovich from In the Line of Fire, and Pete Postlethwaite in The Name of the Father. Good Oscars. Spielberg cleaned up. Jurassic Park also won a bunch of technical awards. Tom Hanks first win. Bruce Springsteen wins for Streets of Philadelphia. And The Fugitive really also began the trend of reboots, remakes, and generally kind of dredging up every piece of old intellectual property. Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks had starred in that Dragnet remake in the late 80s, but that was a comedy that didn't really have anything to do with the old cop show besides its name. The Fugitive, on the other hand, was a serious movie and showed Hollywood how to go about that sort of thing with remakes. Not that Hollywood really listened. They tried a bit with movies like Val Kilmer's The Saint, but largely the remakes sucked and continue to suck. But there was this shining diamond in the rough back in 93. It still holds up incredibly well. Uh, not to sound like an old man yelling at the clouds, but they really don't make them like this anymore. The banner headline of Harrison Ford's career, of course, will be Han Solo in Indiana Jones, but I equally like his work in the action thrillers he did in the 90s. The Fugitive, Patriot Games, Clear and Present Danger, even Air Force One, despite what might be the worst CGI I've ever seen at the end of a movie. I've looked back at some old show notes of ours and movie reviews and things, and I've reviewed movies on our show that I have zero recollection of even seeing, but I've written up a five-minute <laughs> thing that I kept for some reason. But I remember seeing The Fugitive for the first time at the drive-in theater 30 years ago, and I was 17 at the time, usually as teens at the drive-in, we would kind of just screw around and not really watch the movie, but this one we were into, that's how good it was. I got a bunch of 17-year-olds to kind of like put down their beer and pay attention, which is pretty impressive unto itself. Uh, I read something this week that stated that the director Andrew Davis was also putting together a new print for theaters this fall, hopefully coming to a theater near you and me and us. Uh, we'll keep an eye out for that. There's also a 4K Blu-ray in the offing in November. I just rewatched the movie like two weeks ago, but if it comes to theaters in a couple of months, I'm definitely going anyways right now it is streaming on stars if you don't own it and i do suspect it could pop up on a cable channel this weekend given the anniversary and everything so uh, might be worth a little search through your cable if you're looking for a great old movie if you haven't seen the fugitive in years and years uh definitely revisit it it's still as good as you remember
Are you suggesting that when you were at the drive-in, you as an underage Jeff Braun were drinking <gasps> beer? Possibly. Underage drinking in a car, no less. I know. Or uh, walking around, going to other cars to see who's there. You're a menace to society. <laughs> so my drive-ins failed. I haven't. We ruined it for everyone. <laughs> I haven't seen The Fugitive in years. Thanks for the reminder. Love that movie. I do not love this next movie we are going to talk about, which makes me sad because I was so excited when the trailers first came out. Apex Predator. High on cocaine. Out of its mind. Cocaine Bear debuted in February, and I just noticed it on Prime last week. Looks like it debuted on Prime June 24th, but every time I pulled up Prime in recent weeks, I was there to watch Jack Ryan, so I didn't even go to the movies section. So I'm scrolling through, like, oh, they got Cocaine Bear. Let's give this a whirl. It's not bad. It just wasn't great. Like it was, I was, in fact, I was bored. And I would almost suggest that if you watch the trailer, that's all you need. Because there's a lot of filler in between the things that happen in the trailer. And I'll admit this as well. There's part of me that felt kind of guilty because the, the movie is obviously a bunch of BS. It's just a fun fiction story, but it's based on something that actually happened. This bear... Uh, you know, like in the 80s, found this big duffel bag full of coke and ate some of it and died. And so seeing them like lampooning the whole situation, I don't know. It it just sort of felt weird. I thought I would enjoy it more, but I think it was also just because there was a lot of downtime in this. It's still relatively fun, but it's very throwaway. I will tell you that the documentary that accompanies it, so there's a second separate entry, Cocaine Bear, The True Story, is fascinating because I knew the bare bones about the guy that was trying to jump out of the plane and unload all of this coke, but then he died as he was coming to the, like his chute didn't deploy properly, so he died. Uh, but the whole background on who this guy was and the people he was tied to and everything that went into all of the events that led to this poor bear, now known as Pablo Escobar, to dig into that <laughs> duffel bag and eat some coke and die. So anyway, if you're curious about it, it's on Prime Video. It's not the greatest movie. I'm going to give it two and a half couch cushions out of five. But the documentary is pretty cool. That's all the time we've got. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. Don't bother.